Sunday, October the 22nd. Welcome to the Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, So my name's Alan. I've had the immense privilege of being directly involved in responding to global disasters since 1989, and particularly during my 15 years in the employ of Samaritan's Purse. So these included two hurricanes in Nicaragua, um, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami in Sri Lanka, um, earthquakes in Nepal, typhoons in the Philippines, floods in Serbia, Bosnia, even in the Somerset levels. And, and all these disasters were hugely traumatic for those impacted. But do you know, I think the very worst disasters I have responded to in terms of their impact on communities have been those which were man-made conflicts, including the sudden and violent displacement, often called ethnic cleansing, of the Azeris from Karabakh in 1990, or the Uzbeks from southern Kyrgyzstan 2011, um, of the Yazidis and the Kurds and the Arabs from their homes during the ISIS occupation of northern Iraq 2015. And then in the same year, the forced and seemingly endless migration of Syrian and Afghan refugees through southern Europe, uh, to say nothing, of course, of the present conflict in Ukraine, the the fear, the shock, the utter helplessness, which really is palpable in every disaster, is significantly more intense and tangible in situations of violent conflict with its extra layers of anger and injustice. And in the course of my travels to these and other troubled locations around the world, I've deliberately spent a lot of time with the victims of war and genocide. So be it in Brindonk or Belgrade or Srebrenica or Katyn or Kigali or Baku or Cairo, to name just some, I would try and visit the memorial sites and the museums of those impacted in order to pay my respects and in an intentional attempt to deepen my understanding of their voice and their pain. And I'm always hugely subdued, silenced in fact, by the grotesque and inhumane things that people do to one another, usually inflicted by insecure men with too much power and not enough wisdom. But I'm also regularly shocked and upset to hear just how vitriolic the narrative of hatred and blame 
that is not always, but often fed to the children and the grandchildren of those impacted. And you recall an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the Levitical law of exact retaliation or reciprocal justice featured in Exodus 21. It sounds quite a merciless, a merciless law. Uh, but in an ideal world, in other words, where one where people would listen to and have respect for one another, it would have been quite an effective form of justice delivery. The problem with it, of course, is that people don't listen or respect to one another, especially in those conflict situations. So very rarely is an aggrieved community satisfied with an eye for an eye. And the overwhelming perception is that the abuse I suffered was a lot worse than that which I inflicted. And we could call this a justice deficit worldview, maybe. These days it's more often referred to as victim mentality. So in other words, we demand more than a tooth for a tooth. We demand two teeth for one tooth and three teeth for two teeth and four teeth for three teeth and before long, all sides in the conflict have a desperate need for a set of dentures. So justice and revenge are hardly the same thing. As Mahatma Gandhi apparently once said, an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. That is the spiral of ever-increasing violence. What to do? So on a global scale, agencies such as the UN, Relief Web, etc., have internationally recognized ways of describing the progressive stages of disaster response. That is, as communities move from chaos to stability, from surviving to reviving to thriving, if you like. And these stages are often called rescue or relief or response, then recovery, then reconstruction, and then resilience or risk reduction so that the disaster has less chance of reoccurring. And clearly, it's not a legitimate stage unless it begins with an R. But these days I would add another one into the mix, and that is reconciliation. The resolution and repair of relationship. But what do I mean by reconciliation? Where does it fit into our gospel? So 30 years on from the grotesque conflicts in the Balkans, and through a wonderful reconciliation and leadership forum called ROM, Renewing Our Minds, I'm still investing into their millennial generation, Albanians, Bosnians, Croatians, Kosovans, Macedonians, Montenegrins, Serbians. And these are influential young adults, many of whose parents lived through years of unimaginable atrocity and injustice and whose attitudes and behaviours learned from their parents are still often fueled, even unconsciously by suspicion and hatred and prejudice. 
And since COVID, ROM leadership team has regularly asked me to come to the Balkans to teach and to train and to listen. And modelled on the teachings of Jesus, and along with other trainers, I teach those of faith, Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, and Muslims, and those of no faith. And I speak regularly on forgiveness, also on honour and shame, on peace building, on mercy triumphing over judgment, on aid versus community development, on neighbourhood transformation, and on servant leadership. But every time they invite me, I ask them why. I'm just an old guy from a different culture. Convince me of my added value. And this is what they reply. Well, we love what you teach, but the biggest input you give is that you spend time walking with people and listening to them and accepting them and respecting their different ethnicities and narratives, holding them, expressing mercy, praying with them. And incidentally, if you're particularly interested in reconciliation and peace building, we or ROM have a six-week online course called Introduction to Christian Peace Building. It starts on Zoom on which is coming Tuesday. And I'll happily tell you more about this over coffee later if it is of interest to you. And then last December, on the eve of the 50th year on, from the Yom Kippur War, or the Ramadan War, depending on your perspective, I visited a number of Egyptian houses of prayer along the Suez Canal, where the passion and the call from Egyptian believers was for this 50th year, 2023, the year of Jubilee, okay, 7 times 7, 49, plus 1, the year of Jubilees this year, to be a year of reconciliation between Egypt and Israel. And yet 50 years and one day after the start of that war, we saw the outbreak of this horrendous conflict between Palestine's Hamas and Israel. One step forward, three steps back. Such pain, such complexity, such slow progress. And we can easily be tempted to bury our heads in the sand. It's just too painful, it's too complex, it's too global. Leave it with the politicians and the experts. But did you notice the time scales here? 30 years, the Balkans. 50 years, the Middle East. Reconciliation is not a short-term strategy or a quick fix. So within a week of the present conflict in Ukraine, I came to the sober realization that those who are willing to engage in any intelligent and serious reconciliation processes had at least a generation of extremely difficult work in front of them. By now, probably two generations. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We should pray for those engaging in such complex and generational work. 
But what else should we do? What else can we do? What, what can I do? What, what's a biblical Christian response to all this as I walk in the streets of Ipswich? Should this, can this in any way impact my daily life? Well, in one sense, the Bible is full of conflict. Battles rage with an Old Testament focus on nations and tribes on earth and a New Testament focus on spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. We talked songs of battle even this morning of spiritual warfare in the heavenlies in the New Testament. But reflecting the former, the Old Testament, Solomon wrote that there's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for war and a time for peace, whatever that means. Reflecting the New Testament, heralding in anyway the New Covenant era, even Jesus said, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, of course, we need to understand the context here because this was actually said by the Prince of Peace himself. And even after Jesus' victory over death, Paul said for us, struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see the difference there between the Old Testament and the New? So conflict and our relationship and engagement with it is featured repeatedly in the scriptures. There is a time for war and a time for peace. But today I'm here to speak peace. Peace to those who are far away. Peace to those who are near. I'm here to urge us to engage in a message or a ministry of reconciliation. Interestingly, the 14 biblical references to reconciliation are all in the New Testament. When Jesus talked of reconciliation, he related it to the resolving of personal conflict. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar first as a priority. Go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Whoa, hang on a minute. They have something against me, but I'm the one who goes to seek reconciliation with them. Wow, this new covenant really is radically different from the old one. Here we see the introduction of two essential ingredients of reconciliation, that of mercy and of forgiveness. If I did this as a series, we would spend one week on mercy and one week on forgiveness. When Paul discusses reconciliation, the focus is on how God is reconciling us to himself in Christ and, as a consequence, how we have become reconcilers. And Paul illustrates this by looking at what he saw as the greatest conflict of his day, that of the need for reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us Gentiles, assuming most of us here are Gentiles, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but that God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ. And he then asks us to remember that as Gentiles, we were separate from Christ. We were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. We were foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But that now, in Christ, Jesus, you who are once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and to you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And I feel that I've come into a post-COVID awareness, a realization, a conviction, if you like. And that is of the absolute centrality, the foundational posture of the gospel, the stance, if you like, or the bias towards reconciliation, of being brought near, of destroying the barriers and the dividing walls of hostility. Because we all have access to the Father by one spirit. Now sometimes it's complex and it doesn't mean that we condone and affirm every opinion and every behavior. We are peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacemaking seeks to resolve the issues, whereas peacekeeping sort of brushes over them either through fear or compromise. But reconciliation is the fundamental direction of travel for those of us who are in Christ. And Paul talks more about this in 2 Corinthians 5, which to me is the other key chapter on reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, he says, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we employ you on Christ's behalf Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So although God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, you know that's your position in Christ, know you? He has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2. And... If you're not convinced, 
He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1. You might, however, have noticed that for the time being at least, you and I still have our feet firmly planted here on earth. But do you know why? We are merely, simply, and only back here on earth for the purpose of being Christ's ambassadors. Those who belong to and have come from the commonwealth of heaven as his representatives here on earth. And I can even tell you what department of the embassy you are working in. It is the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in everything you think, in everything you do, in everything you say, be it at work or at home or whilst watching football or when telling a joke, when patiently driving in a traffic jam or by simply seeking to smile and offer eyes of kindness to a stranger you pass in the street, your basic direction of travel, your posture, your stance, is as a gatherer, a peace builder, a reconciler. The only reason you're not physically in heaven now is that Christ has called you to be an ambassador representing his kingdom in this outpost called earth. So simply put, we are those who gather, not those who divide. We are those who build bridges, not those who build walls. Walls on the whole are for the Old Testament. 94% of biblical mentions of walls are in the Old Testament. Think of Joshua, Jeremiah, of city walls, of temple walls, and the sayings of several Old Testament prophets. But in contrast to this, the Hebrew word shalom or peace, that is the product of reconciliation, is referred to throughout the Bible, 249 times. And is very much associated with God's blessing, his covenant, it is to be sought, it is to be pursued, it's to be maintained. And shalom is not so much the presence of something, but of someone. Primarily, shalom refers to us being reconciled to God, to having a complete and unbroken relationship with him, and then with ourselves, and then with one another, and with society and with the environment. The Bible always refers to it in positive terms. Shalom means wholeness, it means safety and completeness. And biblically it is aligned with security, with life, with prosperity, with joy and with uprightness. Now Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and he called peacemakers, shalom makers, blessed. And along with New Testament writers, Jesus would use the word shalom both to greet people and when saying goodbye. For example, his first words to all the disciples after his resurrection were, peace be with you. 
And then when preparing the disciples for his departure, peace I leave with you. So shalom is to be proclaimed to those who are near and those who are far away, to those who vote Republican and to those who vote Democrat, to those who read The Guardian and to those who read The Daily Mail, to Christians, to Jews and to Muslims. Assalamu alaikum. Peace is presented throughout the Bible as the antithesis of fear, terror, conflict, war, sword, and famine. It is not merely about having a stress-free day or of the absence of war, any more than light is merely the absence of darkness. Peace is tangible, substantial, quantifiable, to be established robustly, firstly with God, then with myself and with my family and with my neighborhood, in society, in my nation, and with surrounding nations. And Jesus ached for people to understand this. What did he say when he wept over Jerusalem, the city of Shalom? If you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. Or would that you knew the things that made for peace? <sighs> Talk about topical. Paul talks about the bond of peace, the gospel of peace. He says the peace of God transcends all understanding and he asks people to invest into peace. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, he said, live at peace with everyone and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace and reconciliation are absolutely central to the heart of God and to our gospel, to our mission. According to legend, St. Non, the mother of St. David, patron saint of Wales, when in the last stages of her pregnancy found herself out on a stormy night on the wild west coast of Wales, she went into labour. And where the child, David, was born, a spring emerged. And this became known as St. Non's Well. And last month, I stepped over a tiny gully created by the stream of spring water that came from this well, where it insignificantly trickled across the Pembrokeshire coastal path near Britain's smallest city, St. David's, before dropping down the cliff and into the ocean. And I think only the tiniest proportion of long-distance coastal path walkers would ever even notice it today. But it was there that God spoke to me again just last month about standing in the gap. And interestingly, standing in the gap is actually an Old Testament war-related expression, Ezekiel 22, standing in the gap at the weakest points, those created by broken walls. And these days, I think we often hear it used in the context of prayer. But as I stood and straddled that stream, 
I felt God recommissioning me to be a reconciler, a gatherer, a builder of bridges, to take sides, both sides. So would you join me, fellow ambassadors, to stand, as it were, let's actually stand in the conference room of our embassy's department or ministry of reconciliation, to hear again our Heavenly Father calling us to build bridges, not walls, to gather and not to divide, and to let the substantial, tangible peace of God rule in your hearts in everything you do, you think, and you say this week. If you want to do that, perhaps you can join me And we will say this as a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we understand and confess this morning that for those of us who are in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And we acknowledge that all this is from you, who reconciled us to yourself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that you were reconciling the world to yourself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And you have committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We we confess that we are Christ's ambassadors, as though you were making your appeal through us, And we ask you, Heavenly Father, to fill us with the Holy Spirit as we seek to implore others on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to you and to each other. In Jesus' name.